0: gentlemen, I am your host Brad Hicks and this is the Spooky SLV podcast. Let's get started. Good evening ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Spooky SLV podcast. I'm Brad Hicks, your host and narrator of these fine little stories. Um. Uh, Tonight, since it's going to be, you know, several in a row this week, um, I'm going to read uh, not local stories, just some horror stories in Spirit of Halloween. I'm going to be doing two from H.P. Lovecraft tonight. One is called The Terrible Old Man. The other one is called The Outsider. Both of them really good stories. Not long stories, but good stories. So uh, let's get started. Uh, First is The Terrible Old Man by H.P. Lovecraft. It was the design of Angelo Ricci and Joe Kazanek and Manuel Silva to call on the terrible old man. This old man dwells all alone in a very ancient house on Water Street near the sea, and is reputed to be both exceedingly rich and exceedingly feeble, which forms a situation very attractive to men of the profession of messers. Ricci, Kazanek, and Silva, for that profession, was nothing less dignified than robbery. The inhabitants of Kingsport say and think many things about the terrible old man which generally keep him safe from the attention of gentlemen like Mr. Ricci and his colleagues, despite the almost certain fact that he hides a fortune of indefinite magnitude somewhere about his musty and venerable abode. He is, in truth, a very strange person believed to have been a captain of East India clipper ships in his day, so old that no one can remember when he was young, and so taciturn that few know his real name. Among the gnarled trees in his front yard of his aged and neglected place, he maintains a strange collection of large stones, oddly grouped and painted so that they resemble the idols of some eastern temple. This collection frightens away most of the small boys who love to talk to the terrible old man about his long white hair and beard or to break the small paneled windows of his dwelling with wicked missiles. But there are other things which frighten the older and more curious folk who sometimes steal up to the house to peer in through dusty panes. These folks say that on a table in a bare room on the ground floor are many peculiar bottles in each a small piece of lead, suspended pendulum-wise from a string. And they say that the terrible old man talks to these bottles, addressing them by such names as Jack Scarface long tom spanish joe peters and mate ellis and that whatever that whenever he speaks to a bottle the little lead pendulum within makes certain definite vibrations as if in answer those who have watched the tall lean terrible old man in these peculiar conversations do not watch him again but angelo ricci joe kazanek and manuel silva were not of king sport blood They were of that new and heterogeneous alien stock, which lies outside the charmed circle of New England life and traditions. And they saw in the terrible old man merely a tottering, almost helpless greybeard, who could not walk without the aid of his knotted cane, and those thin, weak hands shook pitifully. They were really quite sorry in their way for their lonely, unpopular old fellow whom Everybody shunned, and at whom all the dogs barked singularly. But business is business, and to a robber whose soul is in his profession, there is a lure and a challenge about a very old and very feeble man who has no account at the bank, and who pays for his few necessities at the village store with Spanish gold and silver minted two centuries ago. Messrs. Ricci, Kazanik, and Silva, selected the night of April 11th for their call. Mr. Ricci and Mr. Silver were to interview the poor old gentleman whilst Mr. Kazanek waited for them in their presumable metallic burden with a cover motor car in Ship Street by the gate in the tall rear wall of their host's grounds. Desire to avoid needless explanations in case of unexpected police intrusions prompted these plans for a quiet and un- un- unostentatious departure. As prearranged, the three adventurers started out separately in order to prevent any evil-minded suspicions afterwards. Messers. Ritchie and Silva met in Water Street by the old man's front gate, and although they did not like the way the moon shone down upon the painted stones to the budding branches of the gnarled trees, they had more important things to think about than mere idle superstition. They feared it might be unpleasant work making the terrible old man loquacious concerning his hoarded gold and silver. For aged sea captains are notably stubborn and perverse. Still, he was very old and very feeble. And there were two visitors, messers. Ricci and Silver were experienced in the art of making unwilling persons voluble. And the screams of a weak and exceptionally venerable man can be easily muffled. So they moved up to the one-lighted window and heard the terrible old man talking childishly to his bottles with pendulums. Then they donned masks and knocked politely on the weather stained open door. Waiting seemed very long to Mr Kazanic as he fidgeted restlessly in the covered motor car by the terrible old man's back gate in Ship Street. He was more than ordinarily tender hearted, and he did not like the hideous screams he had heard in the ancient house just after the hour appointed for the deed. He had not had he not told his colleagues to be as gentle as possible with the pathetic old sea captain? Very nervously, he watched that narrow oaken gate in the high and ivy-clad stone wall. Frequently, he consulted his watch and wondered at the delay. Had the old man died before revealing where his treasure was hidden? And that had a thorough search become necessary? Mr. Kazanek did not like to wait so long in the dark in such a place. Then he sensed a soft tread or tapping on the walk inside the gate. Heard a gentle fumbling at the rusty latch and saw the narrow heavy door swing inward. And in the pallid glow of a single dim street lamp, he strained his eyes to see that his colleagues had brought out of the sinister house which loomed so close behind. But when he looked, he did not see what he had expected, for his car- colleagues were not there at all, but only the terrible old man, leaning quietly on his knotted cane and smiling hideously. Mr. kazanik had never before noticed the color of the man's eyes. Now he saw that they were yellow. Little things make considerable excitement in little towns, which is the reason that Kingsport people talked all that spring and summer about the three unidentifiable bodies, horribly slashed as with many cutlasses, and horribly mangled as by the tread of many cruel boot heels, which the tide had washed in. And some people even spoke of things as trivial as the deserted motor car found in Ship Street, on or certain especially inhuman cries, probably of a stray animal or migratory bird heard in the night by the wakeful citizens. But in this idle village gossip, the terrible old man took no interest at all. He was by nature reserved, and when one is aged and feeble, one's reserve is doubly strong. Besides, so ancient a sea captain must have witnessed scores of things much more stirring in the far-off days of his unremembered youth. It's one of my favorite stories. It's just one of those ones where you're like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Hang on. What the hell just happened? Yeah. Terrible old man. It's a great story. Love it. The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft. Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon the lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon odd watches of twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me. To me, the dazed, the disappointed the barren, the broken. And yet I am strangely content to cling desperately to those seer memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. I know not where I was born, save that that castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridor seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere, as of the piled-up corpses of dead generations. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief, nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived in this place for years. But I cannot measure the time. Beings must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself or anything alive but the noiseless rats and bats and spiders. I think whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged since my first conception of a living person was that of somebody mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled, and decaying like the castle. To me there was nothing grotesque in the bones and the skeletons that strewed some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events and thought them more natural than the colored pictures and living beings, which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books, I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me. And I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own. For although I had read of speech, I never thought to try to speak out loud. My aspect was a matter of equally unthought of, for there are no mirrors in the castle, and I merely regarded myself by instinct as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt felt conscious of youth because I remembered so little. Outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forests. Once I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went farther from the castle, the shade grew denser, and the air more filled with brooding fear, so that I ran frantically back, lest I lose my way in the labyrinth of nighted silence. So through endless twilights I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then, in the shadowy solitude, my longing for light grew so frantic that I could rest no more, and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky. And at last I resolved to scale that tower, fall though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased. And thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward, ghastly and terrible was that deed, stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined, and deserted, and sinister was startled bats whose wings whose wings made no noise, but more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress for climb as I might, the darkness overgrew overhead, grew no thinner, and a new chill as of haunted and venerable mould assailed me. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me and vainly groped with one free hand for a window embrasure that I might peer out and above and try to judge the height I had once attained. All at once, an infinity of awesome, sightless crawling up that concave and desperate precipice, I felt my head touch a solid thing, and I knew I must have gained the roof. Or at least some kind of floor, in the darkness, I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, finding it stone and immovable. Then came a deadly circuit of the tower, clinging to whatever holds the slimy walls could give, till finally my testing hand found the barrier yielding, and I turned upward again, pushing the slab or door with it my head as I used both hands in the fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above, and as my hands went higher, I knew that my climb was for the nonce ended, since the slab was the trapdoor of an aperture leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower, no doubt the floor of some lofty and capacious observation chamber. I crawled through carefully and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back onto place, but failed in the latter attempt. As I lay exhausted on the floor, I heard the eerie echoes of its fall, "'hoped when necessary to pry it up again. "'Believing I was now at prodigious height "'far above the accursed branches of the wood, "'I dragged myself up from the floor "'and fumbled about for windows, "'that I might look for the first time "'upon the sky and the moon "'and the stars of which I had read. "'But on every hand I was disappointed, "'since all that I found were vast shelves of marble "'bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size.' More and more I reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment so many eons cut off from the castle below. Then unexpectedly, my hands came upon a doorway where hung a portal of stone rough with strange chiseling. Trying it, I found it locked, but with a supreme burst of strength, I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did so, there came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known. For shining tranquilly through an ornate grating of iron and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from the newly found doorway was the radiant full moon, which I had never before seen save in dreams and in vague visions I dared not call memories. Fancying now that I had attained the very pinnacle of the castle, I commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door, but the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble, and I felt my way more slowly in the dark. It was still very dark when I reached the grating, which I had tried carefully and found unlocked, but which I do not open for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. Then the moon came out. Most demonical of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror with what I now saw with the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying, for it was merely this. Instead of dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me on the level through the grating nothing less than the solid ground, decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns, and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. Half unconscious, I opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions. My mind, stunned and chaotic as it was, still held the frantic craving for light, and not even the fantastic wonder which had happened could stay my course. I I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity, dreaming, or magic, but was determined to gaze upon brilliance and gaiety at any cost. I know not who I was, or what I was, or what my surroundings might be, though as I continued to stumble along, I became conscious of a kind of fearsome, latent memory that had made my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch out of that region of slabs and columns, and wandered through the open country, sometimes following the visible road, but sometimes leaving it curiously to tread across the meadows where... Only occasional ruins bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road. Once I swam across the swift river where crumbling, mossy masonry told of a bridge long vanished. Over two hours must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal, a venerable ivied castle in a thickly wooded park, maddingly familiar, yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in, and that some of the well-known towers were demolished, whilst new wings exiled existed to confuse the beholder. But what I observed with chief interest and delight were the open windows gorgeously ablaze with light, and sending forth sound of the gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly dressed company indeed, making merry and speaking brightly to one another. I had never seemingly heard human speech before and could guess only vaguely what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredibly remote recollections. Others were utterly alien. I now stepped through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, for as I entered, there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I had ever conceived. Scarcely had I crossed the sill, when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamor and panic, several fell in a swoon and were dragged away by their matting madly fleeing companions. Many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of many doors. The cries were shocking, and as I stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed, listening to their vanishing echoes, I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen. As a casual inspection of the room seemed deserted, but when I moved forward one of the alcoves I thought I detected the presence of there the presence there, a hint, of motion behind a golden arched doorway leading to another and somewhat similar similar room. As I approached the arch I began to perceive the presence more clearly, and then with the first and the last sound I ever uttered a ghastly yugulation that revolted me almost as poignantly as the noxious cause, I beheld in full, frightful vividness the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity which had, by its simple appearance, changed a merry company into a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and disillusion. The putrid, dripping eidolon of unwholesome revelation. The awful bearing of that which the merciful earth would always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world. Yet to my horror I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape. And its moldy, disintegrating apparel... An unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralyzed, but not too much so to make a feeble effort towards flight, a backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me. My eyes, bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared loathsomely into them, refused to close, though they were mercifully blurred and showed the terrible object but indistinctly after the first shock. I tried to raise my hand to shut out the sight, yet so stunned were my nerves that my arm could not fully obey my will. The attempt, however, was enough to disturb my balance so that I had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling. As I did so, I I became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the carrion thing, whose hideous hollow breathing I half-fancied I could hear. Nearly mad I found myself yet, able to throw out a hand to ward off the fetid apparition which pressed so close, when in one cataclysmic second of cosmic nightmarishness and hellish accident my fingers touched the rotting outstretched paw of the monster behind the golden arch. I did not shriek, but all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me, as in that same second there crashed down upon my mind a single fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second that had been. I remembered the frightful castle in the trees. I recognized the altered edifice at which I now stood. I recognized most terrible of all the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. But in the cosmos there is balm as well as bitterness. And that balm is Nepenthe. And this supreme horror of that second I forgot. What had horrified me and the burst of black memory vanished in a chaos of echoing images. In a dream I fled from what haunted and accursed pile and ran swiftly and silently into the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble and went down the steps, I found the stone door immovable. But I was not sorry, for I had hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls of the night wind and played by day amongst the catacombs of Ka in the sealed unknown valley of Hadoth by the Nile, I know that light is not for me, save that of the moon over the rock tombs of Neb, nor any gaiety save the unnamed feasts of Nitorcris beneath the great pyramid. Yet in my new, endless, in my new wildness and freedom, I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage. For although Nepenthe had called me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century, and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame, stretched out my fingers and touched a cold, unyielding surface of polished glass. (laughs) Yep, another one of my favorites by H.P. Lovecraft. That one's just... It's creepy. It's beautiful. It's almost lyrical the man does drone on a bit don't get me wrong but still fantastic and the imagery that you get in your head that it's a freaking mummy or something Yeah, it's talking about castles and stuff but then it's talking about egyptian uh mythology so i'm not exactly sure what's going on there i'm just gonna have to reread it a few dozen times i guess (laughs) thanks folks Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for me tonight. Um, I should have another one out tomorrow night as well. So keep an ear out. And again, I am going to talk about my buddy, Andres Herrera. He's a great musician. He gave me the music for the intro and outro here. Um, check him out on uh, Spotify. He has a podcast called The Decibels Deep Podcast, all about music. Uh, good podcast, too. He's very well-informed. He's an intelligent young man. <laughs> and, uh, also give him some love. Show him some love on Instagram. Instagram, he's, uh, um, at Entropy in Motion Music, I think. At Entropy and Motion Music. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And he's also got a Decibels Deep page up on Instagram as well. You can also find him on Facebook under Entropy in Motion Music. So, uh, give him some love, give him a few likes, give him a shout out, like I do, uh, if you feel like it, I mean, you don't have to give him a shout out, why would you give him a shout out, you don't have a show, (laughs) I'm tired, yeah, okay, anyway, Andres, thanks again, and everybody who listens, thank you, have a good night.